Uh, good evening. My name is Sanjeev Arora. I am the chair of the Public Lectures Committee at Princeton, which organizes these lectures. Uh, this is the last lecture of this academic year. I hope you'll come to some next, next year. Uh, tonight's lecturer is Mark Edwards, uh, and uh, I'd like to say a few words about the sponsor for this lecture. It, yeah, it's sponsored by the Lewis Clark Fenixum Foundation, which was founded in 1912 with a bequest of $25,000 uh, by Lewis Clark Benexum of the class of 1879. Past lecturers in this series have included Edwin Hubble, Thomas Mann, James Conant, and Ralph Allison, and Carl Sagan. And uh, tonight, Mark Edwards. Uh, Mark Edwards will be introduced by Professor Catherine Peters of the Department of Civil and Environmental Engineering. Professor Peters is the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs in the School of Engineering and Applied Science, and she's also the past president of the American Environmental Engineering Society of Environmental Engineering Professors. Sir. Uh, please welcome Professor Catherine Peters. Well, thank you very much. This is the first time I've ever been introduced to introduce someone else. And it, it is really my great pleasure tonight to introduce Professor Mark Edwards, our speaker tonight. Mark Edwards is the Charles Lundford Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Virginia Technological University. He has degrees in biophysics and in environmental engineering. His PhD in environmental engineering is from the University of Washington. He's been on the faculty at Virginia Tech since 1997, and before that he was on the faculty at UC Boulder, and before that he was a senior engineer at Montgomery Engineers. Professor Edwards is highly regarded for his research in aquatic chemistry, with particular notable applications in the area of water treatment and arsenic removal, but he is internationally recognized for his research on lead and copper corrosion and its impact on drinking water quality, a problem that affects the endangerment of potable water supplies as well as costing U.S. consumers billions of dollars per year. Among his many honors, Professor Edwards has received the Walter L. Hubble Civil Engineering Research Award from the American Society of Civil Engineers. He was elected president of the Association of Environmental Engineering and Science Professors and it was announced last week that he would receive the Virginia Tech 2006 Alumni Award for Excellence in Research. Over the past two years, Professor Edwards has been invited to give numerous lectures and seminars around the country. And he has been featured in Time Magazine, as many of you know, as well as on the National Public Radio and even in Good Housekeeping magazine. And this all started in March of 2003 when, as part of his research, he discovered excessively high concentrations of lead in drinking water in homes in the D.C. area. And as a result of those findings, he launched an investigation to determine the magnitude scope of this lead, lead contamination problem. And when he learned of its enormous magnitude and scope, he prompted the EPA and the D.C. Water Authority to take action. And the lack of action by the EPA and the D.C. Water Authority prompted Professor Edwards to take his story public to the Washington Post. And as a result of that, the story has gained large media attention. 
In March of 2004, he was called to testify before Congress in the Committee on Government Reform. We are so fortunate to have Dr. Edwards here with us today. And I have known Mark for a long time, and I know that his colleagues in the field of environmental engineering regard him very highly because of his exemplary courage and leadership and commitment to ethical behavior. And I'll just end my introduction with a quote from one of my colleagues. One of my colleagues has said of Mark that in this area of specialization, we should celebrate the presence of faculty members like Mark who are willing and able to work successfully at the interface between basic science and societal problem solving. So with that, let's welcome Mark. Well, thank you very much for those kind words. I can tell you sincerely it's not only an honor to be here, it's humbling uh, to be here today to speak about the issue uh, imminent and substantial endangerment. The subject of this talk is how we have been led astray by the United States Environmental Protection Agency, in my opinion. Now this, I dare say, is going to be a very atypical engineering talk. I've never given one like this, and I'm sure uh, you've never heard one like this. If at any point you feel a desire to laugh at me and not with me, feel welcome because I laugh at myself uh, every day. I freely admit this has uh, actually been an obsession uh, and no rational person in many cases would have done the things uh, that I've done. I will say this is an issue that touches us all at one point or another because we're talking about lead in the tap water, in our homes. This is short on engineering equations in theory, but what it's long on is the first canon of civil engineering, the one I hold uh, nearest and dearest to my heart, and that is the engineer shall hold paramount the health, safety, and welfare of the public. Okay, our roadmap to the first part of this talk, we're gonna start out discussing a little bit about lead and plumbing uh, 101, so we all sort of understand what's involved here. We'll then quickly go through what occurred in 2004 in Washington, D.C., how the authorities stepped in to handle the situation, and a section I call the Empire Strikes Back, uh, which you'll understand when we get there. At that point, we'll stop, open it up for questions, and I'll get into really what's, the, what's new, what's the meat of my talk uh, for today. In speaking of drinking water lead and human health, let's note that we first realized that lead was a problem back in 312 BC. There was a great Roman plumber, Vitruvius, and what he noticed was slaves that worked producing lead pipes were dying at an astonishing rate uh, on the average of uh, life expectancy of three weeks. The Greek physician uh, noted and drew one of the first cause and effect relationships between lead ingestion and harm to human and his quote was, lead makes the mind give way, and that's the insidious effect of lead. Uh, it impacts your neurological function, causes uh, antisocial behavior, dementia, lower IQ, and some people indeed think uh, that the decline of the Roman Empire was tied to high lead ingestions by Romans. In fact, Vitruvius uh, was sort of stuck with lead pipes, but he did note that if he had an alternative, he would take it. He, noted that water ought not to be 
uh, conducted in lead pipes if we want to have it wholesome. Now, unfortunately, even though we developed new materials uh, in the 2,000 years that followed Vitruvius, one of the things that was clear is we didn't pay attention to his lessons. And so, for instance, in 1923, it was possible to find advertisements like this from the National Lead Company uh, talking about how lead plumbing and lead in your home helps to guard your health. And what it's telling you is extolling the virtues of in, in installing pure lead throughout your house, concealing it in your walls and under the floors. Uh, and this is an important note. In some cities, the law required that lead pipe alone uh, bring water from the service line into the house. So this was 1923, and this could be said with a semi-straight face at that time. This is the legacy that we're dealing with. In terms of drinking water, the Environmental Protection Agency in 1991 came up with the EPA lead and copper rule. And this is the first and indeed only rule that requires water companies to go into your home, take a sample of water, and ensure it's safe for a given contaminant. In this case, it's lead and copper. What the law requires is that 90% of drinking water samples collected from high-risk homes have less than 15 parts per billion lead. And I think you can see one sort of downfall of this is that 10% of the homes can have any lead value whatsoever. But the general idea is not to protect every single individual. The idea is that we as a society do what we can to address this problem by reducing the corrosivity of the drinking water. Now, since that rule came out, recent evidence and research has resoundingly shown problems with lead consumption in the human diet uh, at very, very low levels. And the recent data indicate, in fact, that on average, for every microgram per deciliter increase in blood lead, uh, we're talking about an IQ decrease that's detectable on the order of 0.25 uh, units. And so if you're at, in fact, the current elevated uh, lead level is set by the CDC, 10 micrograms per deciliter, what we're talking about is an IQ decrease of seven points and a whole host of other health problems as well. Society takes the issue of lead poisoning and endangerment very seriously. This is an example from a newspaper in Washington, D.C. in 2002. And what happened was a landlord was sent to jail for lying uh, about lead paint hazards. He did not disclose lead paint hazards to his tenants. And for making false statements about that issue, uh, what the U.S. attorney said, sending this person to jail, sends a message to landlords that they have a responsibility to warn their tenants about lead hazards. So keep that in mind as the benchmark standard that we have set for our behavior in relation to exposing humans to lead. And this is for a landlord who has no training in public health or science. Here's a little picture about uh, the problem. The water comes down the streets to your house through big pipes known as water mains. There's no lead uh, in the system prior to that point. So if we measure lead out in those mains, it's at variably very low levels virtually undetectable in most cases. The problem arises across the property line, and what we have is a, a situation where we have those pure lead pipes we talked about that bring the water into your house. Uh, we also have some brass, and we have lead solder that join these point, uh, pipes together. 
All three of these sources, lead pipe, lead solder, and brass, are significant sources to drinking water. And for those of you who might not know what lead solder looks like, this is a picture uh, from a daycare where children actually uh, eventually had lead poisoning. What you're looking at is the outside of a copper pipe, and you can see the solder that's used to join these pipes together is just streaming down. There's pieces uh, all over the floor, and the inside of the pipe can look the same as well. So this is what we're talking about. Lead solder, 50% uh, lead by weight, and it's generally believed to be the dominant source of lead to drinking water in the United States, according to the EPA. There's a couple of important things to uh, think about in relation to lead and water. First and foremost, the way we always thought about it was it was a dissolution reaction. So just like sugar and salt dissolve in water, when the water goes through those pipes, contacts the lead, some of the lead dissolves into the water as well. And depending upon the corrosivity of the water, you can get more dissolved lead or less. But there's also an issue associated with particles. And what we're talking about here is a situation where we have our lead solder or lead pipe or brass material contacting the water. And it's a two-step process, the first step of which is corrosion or electrochemistry, where the lead material rusts and forms an oxide. What then can happen is you can have detachment of the lead into your drinking water during flow events. So for instance, this uh, relatively friable layer is on your pipe. You get scouring when the flow rate is high. The particles fall off, and they're introduced into your drinking water. So in the, if you have a faucet in your home that has no aerator then, and this sort of thing happens, what can occur is the particles will go down your faucet nozzle, out, and you can get spikes of lead in your drinking water. If you turn on the water at a low flow rate, oftentimes these spikes are absent. But if you uh, turn the, the flow rate on very high, you can, you can observe one of these spikes. Now, of course, uh, the faucet aerator is actually a, a very interesting thing. Okay, this is a typical faucet here. The aerator is that little thing on the end of it. And if you take that off and disassemble it like I frequently do, there's four parts in there. Uh, there's a screen. Uh, there's a little uh, plastic plate. And if we could just uh, reduce the lights a little bit, uh, it might make it easier to uh, see the screen. But uh, these are kind of engineering marvels. And I find myself taking these things apart uh, around the country and rarely being able to get them back in the right order that they're put in. And I'm telling you, one of these things out of place, it doesn't work correctly. That's OK, good. So the aerator introduces some complications. First and foremost, it serves as a barrier. Particles can be trapped on that screen. That's a good thing. We're not getting the spikes. We get lead trapped on the particles. But over time, these particles accumulate. And they, what we've learned in recent years is they kind of get ground up in a kind of grating action against the screen. And they get introduced into the drinking water in terms of little tiny particles of lead, each one of which can have on the order of about 1,000 parts per billion lead in it. So it's quite amazing what these small particles uh, can have in terms of lead content. And this is a big concern that's gone unaddressed in recent years. So the takeaway message in terms of uh, Plumbing 101, if you want to protect yourself from lead in drinking water, uh, if the water sat stagnant in your lines in your house, rinse it out before you collect it. Rinse it thoroughly, get that fresh water in there, the lead levels go down. Clean out your aerator frequently because those particles build up and they serve as a significant lead source. Flush out the sediment from your lines to make sure that lead particles are not accumulated in there. 
And then this is uh, some recent advice, but if you want to get low lead, uh, turn on the tap slowly, because if you turn it on quickly, you oftentimes will get a spike. So let's switch gears now, and now that you understand the issue of plumbing 101 and lead in drinking water, let's talk about the events of 2004 in Washington, D.C. The characters in this little drama, they're worth introducing. There's the Environmental Protection Agency, and in the story that unfolds, they actually have two roles. They're not only the traditional regulator, but they also have direct oversight in Washington, D.C. In other words, Washington, D.C. is not the state. It's not a state. There is no state in between EPA and the Water Authority. So if anything goes wrong in Washington, D.C. drinking water, it's EPA's fault. D.C. WASA is the customer, uh, is the water company that sends the water to the homeowners, of course the consumer, we all know they drink the water. And the D.C. Department of Health and the CDC supposedly are interested in protecting uh, people's health. And again, unique uh, double role for EPA in this situation. Now, prior to 2004, uh, what occurred in Washington, D.C., this is the 90th percentile lead reported to the EPA as a function of time. And this is the 15 part per billion EPA lead action limit. And all, in the decade prior to 2000, uh, what had occurred was they were uh, under the EPA allowable lead in their drinking water. Everything appeared to be fine, but it wasn't. What happened in late 2000 was that the water company switched from free chlorine to chloramine disinfection with good intention. Basically, this is a switch in water treatment practice that the EPA is recommending to reduce potential carcinogenic compounds in drinking water. What occurred in the sampling round immediately after that is worth noting. Uh, most of the samples represented by this dot right here were collected prior to the time that chloramine was used, but a few samples were collected after that, and they were very, very high. And unfortunately, what happened was the person that collected those samples decided that they didn't want to count them because if they did, they'd be over the EPA action limit, and they'd have to start informing people that the water was unsafe. So this is completely illegal what happened. Now, it might surprise you to know that once the utility passes the EPA lead and copper rule, they don't have to sample the water for three years. So uh, what happened though, they were close and actually they did do some follow-up sampling and after that time they noted very, very high amounts of lead in drinking water. Uh, this occurred without most of the public being informed of this issue until January of 2004, the Washington Post ran an article that informed them that their water had unhealthy amounts of lead. So in other words, this problem had gone on for three years prior to the time that the Washington Post article hit, and to date, uh, the problem's gone on for five years, and there's some question as to whether they're actually meeting the action limit even today. So what was our role in all this? Well, we tried to uh, alert EPA to the increased corrosivity of the water. Uh, what we discovered was sometimes chloramines and these new treatments were eating up copper pipe, and we also mentioned that it appeared they might be causing this lead problem in Washington, D.C. I also took some samples personally in 
consumers' homes in Washington, D.C., and I set up a sampling program at the utility that showed very clearly this problem was even much, much worse than those numbers indicate. And I'll mention that in just, just a minute. But I was hired by the EPA, and uh, one of the first things we did is it was very clear chloramine was the cause, and this was a very controversial thing. It's not something people wanted to hear. We tried to do something good. It had a bad, unintended consequence. But this is some of the data that we saw. This is the lead concentration in our experiments in milligrams per liter. So to get in parts per billion, which is the normal unit I'm using this talk, this would be 10,000 parts per billion. What we did is we just took Washington, D.C. Uh, water in the lab with chlorine versus the new situation with chloramine. And we saw in some situations that uh, the lead leaching increased very dramatically to the water supply. There was little doubt, in our opinion, that chloramine was the cause. Then something interesting happened, and it's a little bit too complicated to go into, but basically uh, a message came from the water utility that our researchers, or my, me in particular, I was either with them or against them in terms of this corrosivity issue. What had happened is I started working with homeowners on their copper pinhole leak problems that they were having, and there was a lawsuit against the utility, and even though they'd promised us all this work and research on lead, uh, basically they said, you have to make a decision, and I decided I'm against them. Well, the problem was the word wasn't getting out, and some really good reporters at the Washington Post picked up the story. Uh, the article got into the newspaper in January 31st of 2004, and everyone just went crazy because they knew the lead had been in the water for a long time. And to put this in some perspective, on the radio stations, uh, they were having lead updates twice hourly. It was the front page of the Washington Post, I think, for about uh, 35 days. So this dominated the conversation of the city. And about that time, uh, some articles came out that sort of illustrated this was not a typical problem. Folks were calling us and saying, uh, the utility tested the lead in our water, and we've got thousands of parts per billion. This is an article appeared in the Washington Post uh, where folks had been measured with 48,000 parts per billion, 24,000 parts per billion lead in their water. Now, to put this into perspective, 5,000 parts per billion lead qualifies a sample as a hazardous waste. So in theory, this sample right here had nine times the lead in it that would qualify a sample as a hazardous waste. Legally, you're not even supposed to flush that into the sewer. Okay? The other issue was, you know, the water company and the Department of Health weren't really protecting people at that time, as illustrated by this. Uh, at that homes, the Department of Health came by, knocked on their door, asked whether there were any pregnant women or children in the house, and when the couple said no, they left. So kind of a good rule of thumb is if in the future anyone ever asks you if there's any pregnant women or children in the house, the answer is yes. Okay, then worry about the repercussions later. But this really uh, dominated the conversation in D.C. Lawmakers started to look at the, in this, and there was a total of about six congressional committee investigations that resulted. And it all hinged upon what was EPA's role. What was the Department of Health doing? What was this utility doing not to tell people, not to inform them about the issue of lead and water? 
And here's an example of the kind of testimony that occurred when I went down there on March 5th, 2004 to testify. Uh, this is a question posed to the EPA by the congressperson. And I'll just let you judge for yourself the answer. Oops. Anything like this happen any place else in the country to this degree? I mean, is there any precedent for this? There is a precedent not to this degree, though, Congressman. I mean, there are instances uh, So this is the worst the case that's ever happened in the country uh, uh, in terms of the level and length of exposure to lead through the drinking water. Is that a fair statement? Uh, uh, that's a good point. Um, staff is informing me that at Superfund sites, I mean, there, there are lead contamination. Well, hazardous material sites. Well, yeah. Right. Um, but in terms of a, yeah, well, <laughs> the, um, from the perspective of the lead in the drinking water in the system, um, there are cities in the country that have uh, exceeded action levels under the lead and Well, quality. sure, but an action level but is not 15 parts per billion. Okay, so every now and then the truth sort of slips out. Uh, then this guy was quoted in the paper the next day. Uh, I don't know of any situation like this in the country. Staff tell me there's more lead in EPA Superfund sites, as if the people in Washington, D.C. should be happy uh, to hear that sort of comparison. Uh, and after the uh, hearing, actually, that congressperson came up to me, and he never saw government agencies that looked more like deer uh, trapped in the headlights in his life. And he came away from this genuinely concerned. Now, I was also involved in that hearing. I made many statements that were at the time controversial, the vast majority of which were later confirmed. But here's one that I want you to remember because it, it turned out to be uh, somewhat controversial. Uh, one is, is uh, Dr. Edwards, I noticed that you said that the, your, 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 um, uh, your slides were not taken private homes, were not from private homes, were from apartments. I asked the prior panel about apartments because that's where most people in the District of Columbia live, not in private homes. And of course, the testimony of, of the Wasser testimony, I believe, was that uh, we, we don't think this is a problem in apartments. I'd like your, your, your advice on, what, on, on that and whether or not what you saw, you regarded, what you, uh, in fact, uh, derived was, in fact, uh, in your view, typical apartment homes. If you press them, I think they would admit that they haven't tested new homes and apartments. And apartments. Yeah, I, I think they have focused. Okay, so just to reiterate what was said there, the water company and EPA were saying this is a problem only with lead pipes. I had personally been in apartments myself and collected samples in the thousands of parts per billion. I did that myself. Now, I later discovered at this time they had virtually no data about lead in apartments, but they were ordered by Congress to go in and sample apartments to find out whether there was a lead problem in there. So about this time, uh, the Washington Post just doing a fantastic job. They went and discovered that several U.S. utilities were kind of misrepresenting results, gaming the system. That was occurring. Uh, it's a sad fact, but it's true. They went and they sampled on the Congress, and uh, they actually discovered up on Capitol Hill 
uh, that many of the faucets were contaminated up there. And I'm going to come back to this later, but uh, if you've ever sort of thought half the people in D.C. at any one time are sort of deranged, this is the explanation, lead in their water. About that time, uh, 10 days after finding it in the Capitol, uh, EPA decided that WASA broke the law. EPA went and they sought stiffer rules on lead in drinking water. This was March 8, 2005. There was a lead-free drinking water act uh, that was pushed through Congress. I'm told it's not really going to go anywhere, but it was quite satisfying for me to see that sort of progress and result. And these are all very positive things that were happening. And just last month, the General Accounting Office came out with a fairly detailed investigation, uh, sort of indicting what EPA had been doing performance-wise in terms of lead and copper. And this actually got a lot of press. Uh, our research was written up in Environmental Science and Technology, PRISM Magazine, Time. And if I was just going to give an overall summary of what my role was in this, basically in a practical sense, I think it was, it was way exaggerated. Uh, we did very good science, but I really give all the credit in the world to the Washington Post reporters and to Congress for forcing upon an unwilling EPA and in some cases, an unwilling water industry, um, some much-needed changes. So that's the good news. One of my uncles uh, actually gave me some good advice at that time. He said, Mark, you know, you've done your part. Step back. You've alerted the authorities. Let them handle the situation henceforth. And I did that, and my health was such that I was very relieved uh, to let that happen. But how did the authorities handle it? And just to illustrate, they came into this with some baggage. For instance, D.C. WASA, look, they broke the law. They had this problem for years. The Department of Health also knew about this problem for years, refused to help at one point, the water utility. And the only person fired in this thing so far is the head of the Department of Health uh, for refusing to help. Now, the EPA, they're in sort of an odd position because their regulation inadvertently caused this problem, and they allowed this problem to go on for years. They have complete responsibility. So just remember this when I talk about the EPA in uh, the following slides. That is, if there's lead in Washington, D.C.'s water, it's the EPA's lead. And this is a, a very uncomfortable position for the EPA to be in. They're not used to being the bad guy. They're used to riding to the rescue when it's someone else's problem and pointing to them and saving the day. So the authorities, and they brought in a new group, the Centers for Disease Control, uh, came in and thoroughly investigated themselves. And in late March of 2004, they rendered their verdict, and surprise, surprise, no harm was done at all from this. And let me give you the evidence that came out of their investigation, and we're going to address this more in greater detail. The key data of 64 children that they identified with elevated blood lead, none of them had water as the source, not one. Of 201 people living in the worst houses, the houses that had over 300 parts per billion lead in their drinking water, they looked at all their blood lead, and none of them had levels over CDC's uh, level of concern. They also went out and they sampled lead in the schools and the apartments. Remember, that sort of arose from my own sampling in apartments. And they found only minor problems, very, very low levels of lead. So I pondered this 
with some dismay. I'll just talk about some immediate commentary that came out of it. Uh, it was it was profound. The Washington Times had an editorial that said, The ongoing hysteria about lead in D.C.'s drinking water is much ado about nothing. The EPA can now reasonably claim no harm, no foul. And in the Washington Post, there was an opinion published of an expert, drinking water is at most a minor source of lead for children. At most. Not usually. At most, lead is a minor source uh, lead in water is a minor source of lead in children's blood. So my thoughts at the time were somewhat disheartening. I thought, what had I been doing? Had I overreacted? Had I raised alarms needlessly about this problem? I went and I looked at EPA's web pages, trying to read up on the health effects of lead, because I was just astounded at this. How could this be? I looked at the web pages and I, you know, I had to personally conclude in all likelihood I had overreacted. Uh, it was also disappointing to think, you know, this is my life's work. I mean, I used to get excited at 100 parts per billion lead in drinking water. I worked with utilities getting it down from 30 to 15. 300 parts per billion lead in water didn't matter. Did I waste all that time? Of all the things that I went through, this is the worst, I have to say. And then where is the lead in that apartment? Did I, did I find the only apartments in Washington, D.C. that had high lead? They went out and sampled hundreds of apartments. I sampled two and I found it lead in the thousands. How, I just, it was beyond comprehension to me. But, you know, in about that time, there was sort of a, a payback. Well, you might expect that, you know, if you speak out. No, no surprises. Uh, EPA questioned the integrity of my work. Now, that happened mostly behind my back. It's kind of the rumors you can never track down. He said, she said. Uh, but there was actually one time where an EPA representative was speaking. And he didn't know someone was taking the minutes of the meeting. And amongst the thing he said was, uh, my peer review work in the journal really had never been peer reviewed. He also said that I was prone to making statements of fact that were not necessarily fact. I was also making a presentation at a professional conference. Someone from the galley came up, called me irresponsible for what I did. And, you know, it was kind of interesting just to watch the literal and figurative high fives exchanged among this, this person uh, and people in the audience. I mean, there was clearly some resentment that I had probably uh, unduly raised alarm about this problem. And, you know, I lost some money, but you can never really quantify that. But we know it happens. That's the sort of thing that occurs. So it was about that time when I was going through a, a period of depression when some bizarre things started happening. I started getting uh, anonymous letters, uh, anonymous information sent to me. One of the uh, pieces of information I got was a verbal comment made to me. I was making a presentation talking about the mistakes that the utility made. And someone came up to me after I spoke about this and said, you know, it's the D.C. Department of Health you ought to be looking at. They are the criminals. This is the quote. And I said, how can that be? I just told you this utility illegally invalidated samples. She said, I'm not going to tell you anymore. So think about that a little bit. 
I got some package with some interesting emails uh, from EPA with a uh, Philadelphia date mark on it. And I actually got a phone call uh, that was quite interesting. Uh, what had occurred was our lawsuit with the homeowners had gone on, and the lawyer from the other side, I sort of was going through this thing, and I was, I was thinking, I'm losing my mind at this point. Well, the lawyer from the other side uh, called me up one day. He said, he thinks his phone's tapped. It's like the other side knows exactly what we're doing. And I said, you know, I really think you're losing it here. And we had a discussion about it, and I tried to persuade him his phone wasn't being tapped. But it was that day, actually, uh, when I got an interesting phone call. You may listen to your own it's a voicemail message. To listen to your own message, one was received at 5.50 p.m. Thursday. Hi, Dr. Edwards. I am a graduate student, or entering as a graduate student. Um, and actually a recent graduate of Virginia Tech. And um, a couple of things came to my attention. And one of my professors uh, works with you and it's, uh, respects you very much. And I just wanted to pass on some information, but I'm not going to read my name. Um, one of your postdoc students, I believe, I'm not sure if she's a graduate or a postdoc student, is passing along information on your research to uh, the District of Columbia water quality manager that you are actually involved uh, in the lawsuit and testifying against, I believe. Um, her name is Yu Jin Lee, and she is um, actually sleeping with and dating the water quality manager at the <laughs> and has been providing information. Okay, so you get the idea. So when I first got this thing, I just laughed. I just said, you know, this has to be a practical joke. There's no possible way this is true. I know this person. And indeed, the person she was talking about was not only the expert witness on the other side of the lawsuit, it was someone I thought was a very good friend of mine. And come on, you know, clandestine engineering sex make up something that people will believe, all right? <laughs> But, you know, the more I thought about it, the more, who would make up something like that? Seriously. Who would make up that? So I'm going through this thing where I'm saying, there's no way it can be true. It has to be true. No way. It can't. It has to be. I was just going crazy. Well, finally what happened, I was uh, leaving a note on her desk, and actually I found a paper from the lawsuit uh, that once had been in my office, and it was now in her office. Uh, the lawyer whose side is uh, paying me in the lawsuit said they had to go and hire a private investigator and go through emails, and indeed they did find out they were having uh, a relationship, uh, and it was a sort of use-and-be-use used sort of situation. Now, uh, one of the interesting things about this, the thing that really drove this home to me, uh, the type of people I'm, wor I'm, I'm against here, is that it turns out that this guy, who I thought my, was my friend, not only was, uh, in my opinion, getting information from my postdoc, but it also previously approached two of my graduate students, uh, and they blew him off. So these are the type of people uh, that I was dealing with, and this is the first time I really realized that. About that time, another thing happened uh, that sort of galvanized me to action, and that is uh, I had continued warning the EPA and saying, why? Do you think this problem's in only Washington, D.C.? Why do you think it's only lead pipe? Nothing happened. And so what happened about that time 
In Greenville, North Carolina, it turned out there were a couple cases of lead poisoning tied to drinking water. The utility had switched to chloramine in 2002 from free chlorine. Uh, and what happened is they looked all over the house. They couldn't find any other source of lead in the water. So they went to the water and they took off the aerator and pieces of solder came out of the end of the aerator. And they actually tested uh, the water and it took more than 10 minutes of flushing before the lead levels went down. Similar to what I saw in those DC apartments without lead pipe. So one of these children that was lead poisoned was in a daycare. And uh, we went in and we looked around the daycare. It was kind of a surreal experience. But when we finally got to uh, these pipes, what we found was just what I had seen in DC, pieces of lead solder stuck on the aerator, uh, infiltrating the screens. Uh, this is a situation where part particulate lead was pouring off into the drinking water uh, in that area. We even went to the county health building. They were very helpful. Uh, we're walking down the environmental health wing, and I say to my students, hey, go sample that tap over there where they're uh, getting coffee. So we pull the thing off, and solder plopped out into the sink. These are pieces of solder that just came out into the sink after removing the aerator. And these are the uh, particles, the other half of the particles that we captured. So this was uh, quite a few places that we looked in Greenville. And the amazing thing to me, although it's not amazing, uh, the medical doctor involved wasn't convinced that water was the cause. And he still didn't feel that way in May of 2005. Why? Why didn't he believe? Chunks of lead in the drinking water didn't believe lead was the cause. Why is it? Can anyone tell me? Because of Washington, D.C. A year earlier, they published that study. 300 ppb lead didn't matter. When he found the high lead in Greenville, he called those guys. They told him water's at most a minor source of lead. They didn't even test the water for a whole year in Greenville, in which time this child's blood lead doubled. So what was the extraordinary amounts of lead in this water that had poisoned this child? 300 ppb in D.C. didn't matter. 80 parts per billion. Now, I know certain laws that apply in the rest of the world don't apply in Washington, D.C. So, for instance, ethics. You know, we all understand that. But the laws of physics and biology, why is it 80 parts per billion could cause lead poisoning in Greenville, but it had no effect in D.C.? And the other thing was there was no lead pipe in Greenville. This was solder. So at this point, I'm getting pretty mad. Now, for a whole host of reasons, I finally realize what I'm up against. And I have a sense that there's some serious problems with what the authority did uh, to, quote, handle this problem. So I started a long process that I knew from the start that was probably going to be futile. I started doing Freedom of Information Act requests of the various agencies, EPA headquarters, Region 3, DC Department of Health, CDC, and GSA. The other thing is I don't believe in half-hearted measures, you know? If you're gonna burn the bridge, just blow the thing up, all right? So I kind of got their attention right from the start. Uh, it looks like you're interested in receiving electronic copies of all email records from four EPA staff from 6-1-2002 to present. Please confirm, confirm this is the case. They'd never seen a request like that before. 
Early on, they discussed a way to get around the Freedom of Information Act request. Now, how do I know this? Well, a document they produced said a way to get around the Freedom of Information Act request. This was a meeting held, meeting notes held, two days after I submitted my FOIA. Uh, one of the things that I was uh, kind of looking for was I knew EPA was saying things behind my back, and I thought, hey, you know, one of the things I want to see, what were they saying about me? You know, I would say something to their face, they would stab me in the back. What were they saying behind my back? I want to read the emails about me. So they listed a bunch of emails that were about me. They said, I'm not, and they're not going to produce them. I appealed. They were forced to produce them. And uh, here's what I got. You can see this is uh, Edward's letter response, Edward's letter response, Edward's letter response. There's no doubt what this is about. Uh, kind of the words, I think that this would be a good approach. This looks very good. Uh, thanks for your comments. I believe one letter should fight, suffice. So, you know, I admit I was paranoid. There's no words there that could possibly uh, be of concern about me. The other things that were sort of happening, uh, EPA was not responding to many of my requests. Now, I could sit here all day and tell you, I think they did this, I think they did that. Uh, that's, a, that's an I said, they said something. What happened was I ultimately had a chance to test their honesty. And I don't know if a test like this has ever been run before, but I had an anonymous uh, spreadsheet that someone sent me, and I don't think I'm supposed to have this. Talked about data from eight DC homes, some with very high levels of lead. Now this data contradicted earlier statements by the EPA, and I figure they don't want me to see that data. So I just said, as a test, I'll pay a few hundred dollars. Let's see what happens when I uh, request this spreadsheet. What happens when I request this data? So here's the data. What it's got is the flush time here. So this is the first liter, second liter, fourth liter, sixth liter, three minutes of flushing, 10 minutes from the tap. These are different homes, different dates. Ah, nothing much happening here. Oh my gosh. 15,888 parts per billion in that sample. That's enough lead in a single glass of water to cause elevated blood lead in a child. 23,183 parts per billion lead. This is the original spreadsheet. What'd they send me? I kid you not. It says deleted, where the 15,000? This whole other data set's gone. Now, I did this whole experiment based on the premise they were lying. But yet I sat there going back and forth. This is the original spreadsheet. This is what they sent me, the original spreadsheet. This is what we sent me. I, I still couldn't believe it. I've got this sort of mental problem, okay? So then I call this guy and I figure, okay, you know, let's let him in on the secret. Let's have him fess up here. So what did he say? Uh, I decided to appeal the fact you didn't, uh, you said you gave me all the data. I sent you everything I had, is what he tells me. And then later I ask him, did you ever figure out why I didn't get the data? I'm trying to clue him in. Go look. I sent you everything I had. Then I said, he basically said, put up or shut up. I sent you everything I had. So I said, how about an email sent to you under about this time that talks about this data right here? And I directed him to a spreadsheet on his computer. Now his story changes. Like I said, I sent everything I have. 
So then I sort of clued him into the fact I already have this spreadsheet. You know, why did I do this? I figured you weren't going to give it to me. So he sort of knows he's gone. And his new story is, I sent you what I have that I could find. That's not the same as sending you all I ever had or have ever seen. I either saw it at someone else's office or I made a hat at one time and I deleted it. Well, he later sent it to me. So I was kind of curious, was he going to say I deleted it or did he, is he really going to send it? He sent me the original spreadsheet. Okay, here's another example. Uh, I Freedom of Information Act requests health effect memos on lead from EPA. This was in uh, October, uh, November of 2005. They send me some memos. They said, basically, give us some more time to look. And their final determination was, we've looked and there's no more memos. So at this point, I'm just assuming they're pathological liars. So I just totally bluff. I tell them, if I have a copy of a memo that reviewed health effect studies of lead during this time, what would I conclude? I'll wait four days, then I'm going to go to the inspector general's office. Three days later, I had staff recheck their files. One more time, we did find one document. We're requesting an extension of 10 days to follow up, and then they finally produced it. Now, I'm going to talk more about what this memo said later on. So let's review uh, a little bit about the EPA, their mission. The mission of the Environmental Protection Agency is to protect human health and the environment. And by this time, I'm concluding, yeah, that is your mission up to the point where it's your lead, in which case uh, your mission is to protect the EPA. And human health be damned. And if you think I'm exaggerating, uh, I want you to see what I found when I went back and did an investigation of what their lead site said before Washington, D.C. and after. Before Washington, D.C. A child's mental and physical development can be irreversibly stunted by overexposure to lead. Irreversibly stunted. After Washington, D.C., in babies and children, exposure and lead to drinking water above the action level can result in delays in physical and mental development, along with slight deficits in attention span and learning abilities. So we've gone from irreversible stunting uh, to slight deficits in attention spans. This occurred in the last week of March. Here's another example. How much lead is too much? We used to have a standard of 50 parts per billion. In light of new health and exposure data in 1991, EPA set an action level of 15 parts per billion. No doubt this is due to health effects, is it not? What does their new website say? How can I tell if my water contains too much lead? Have it tested. Here's my personal favorite. Before DC, there was a statement on the EPA webpage that said, Lead in drinking water at levels above 40 parts per billion poses an imminent and substantial danger to women and children. Now, who doesn't understand what that means? I understood. I saw this before Washington, D.C., and it was removed March 23rd of 2004. And what did they put up in its place? The action level for lead is 15 parts per billion. This action level is not designed to measure health risk from water represented by individual samples. This action level is a statistical value that, if exceeded, requires a water system to perform additional treatment, public education, and possible lead service line replacement. In other words, what happened was EPA went in and systematically removed every reference to a health effects of lead at a level in drinking water. 
And those statements are gone today from the EPA website. So I then did an investigation, uh, not with much help from the Freedom of Information Act, but just from a lot of hard work on my part. Let's take these things in turn. Of the 65 children identified with elevated blood lead, none had water as the source. This gave me an opening. If I could find a single child that had water as a source, that would prove this statement was false. So I made a lot of phone calls. I found people who had some data that looked relatively convincing. They didn't want to become part of a public battle. But here's the data I eventually found. This is data from blood lead from two twin boys in a single family as a function of time. This is their blood lead. And I want to note, chloramines were started November of 2000. These children were born January 23rd of 2001. About the first year of their life, their mothers started noticing that they were not developing properly. They sought out uh, the care of development specialists. One of the child uh, started walking very late. The other child started speaking very, very late. Finally, they went and had a checkup at their doctor. Both boys had elevated blood lead. They tried to uh, take some action against this. They called the Department of Health in in 2003, asked the Department of Health, is there possibly a problem with water? The Department of Health said no. They said, you've got some lead paint out back outside your house. We couldn't identify any source of lead in your house, no dust, no paint, but there's that paint source out there. The father said, well, they never play out there. The Department of Health said, well, then it can't be the source, but I'd recommend you remediate it anyway and take these additional steps to mitigate your children's lead exposure to dust and paint. They did that. They waited eight months, and what actually happened over that eight-month time period is the child's average blood lead between the two went up. It was two days after this, the article came out in the Washington Post. The father said, let's stop drinking the water. What the Department of Health told us did not work. And here's what happened to their blood lead. Now, this father is willing to testify that the Department of Health uh, came into his house and said that the paint and the dust in that situation could not possibly have been the source for their child's blood lead. What was the amount of lead in their water? 24 parts per billion. 24 parts per billion lead in their water did this. Okay, more on that in a minute. What about this one? Of the 201 people living in the worst homes with greater than 300 parts per billion lead, none of these folks had lead above CDC levels of concern. Here's what the journal article said, uh, March 30th, 2004. By late January 2004, results indicated that many homes in D.C. had lead above EPA's action level. On February, D.C. requested CDC to come in and help on the lead effects. They went out and tested these people in the worst-case homes. On February 26, 2004, Department of Health started recommending people don't drink the water. If you read this peer-reviewed journal article, it makes it sound like everything transpired between late January and February of 2004. Now, why is that important? If you're trying to tie blood lead to a source, time is of the essence. For instance, blood lead will rapidly drop once the source is removed. This is uh, based on half-life calculations. Initial blood lead is a function of time. Even in one month, once you remove the source, blood lead can drop 
uh, by, uh, you know, up to like 60%. But given the fact that this study was done over just a month, I thought to myself, it had to be the case. Some problems would have been detected. What really happened? Well, without much help from the Department of Health, I found out the real story, uh, mostly by Internet information. The reality is the water samples were collected in summer and fall of 2003. People volunteered for this study before this had hit the newspapers. Many of those people were informed that their water had lead in it at more than 20 times the action. Well, now let me ask you, what kind of parent would volunteer for a study get a letter in the mail that says your water tested 20 times EPA action limit and would not take steps to prevent harm to yourself or your children. I submit to you, it's the exception and not the rule. Most blood levels were not even collected until March 2004. Okay, and get this. By March 19th, they only had two-thirds of the blood lead data collected. But the paper appeared... March 30th. Who in this audience has gotten a paper published in that kind of time frame? You don't even have your date on March 19th. It was peer-reviewed and published by March 30th. So I went and I did a Freedom of Information Act request on this. Six months ago, I requested this data. They did not respond to me. I appealed, and I won the appeal. The mayor's office ordered them to produce the documents from this study. It's a month after that deadline. They still haven't produced the data. And last week they told me they can't find it. Now, this is not, you know, some student doing a little project in the lab. This is the study on blood lead. And they're telling me they can't find the data? And I went to CDC and I asked them about their journal policy. I asked them, did they know that the water utility funded this study, for instance? Because it's on the water utilities page that they were the funding agency for this. Not mentioned in the journal article. CDC refuses to respond to me. Seven letters. And I know darn why. Well, why? Because uh, they violated many of their own policies in getting this article published. And the reality, therefore, is when people were warned months before uh, we had ample opportunity for blood lead to drop, and by the time they collected those samples in March, there was virtually no chance that the subjects that they sampled could have had any evidence of elevated blood lead, even when they very well ha could have had a problem before they were warned. That's the reality. What about that memo that EPA didn't want to produce to me, the memo they found? What sort of information did that have in it? This is a memo from the Office of Research and Development, EPA Sciences. Risks of elevated blood lead for infants drinking formula prepared with tap water, March 3rd, 2004. One month before EPA pulled all that information on dangers of lead tied to specific levels of lead in drinking water. What did this memo have in it that allowed EPA to go out and remove this sort of information? Here's a graph of a table. The probability of elevated blood lead in a child is a function of lead in drinking water. Let's look at what these numbers uh, are. What about that 15 parts per billion action limit that's not health-based? Well, that's a 4% chance of a child drinking that water 
having elevated blood lead. What about the level of lead that was in that water of the two twin boys in Washington, D.C.? 24 parts per billion. That's a 28% likelihood of having elevated blood lead. What about what used to be an imminent and substantial danger, 40 parts per billion? That's a 42% chance of having elevated blood lead. What about 300 parts per billion lead in the water? Well, they didn't go that high. But at 200, you had virtual certainty of a child drinking that water, of an infant drinking that water, having elevated blood lead. And what is EPA doing now? Besides pulling that information off their web page, they're actually advertising the results of that DC blood lead study. This is on their web page right now, talking about how they went and looked at people with drinking water, 300 ppb lead, and they couldn't find any evidence of elevated blood lead. Now, it turns out DC Department of Health, who was the author of this study, would not give them their permission to use their logo. What about the samples of lead in the schools and apartments? Well, you know, I was doing some research on this, and eventually this just wasn't adding up. For instance, a nearby utility, they had a very active corrosion control pro program, free chlorine and phosphate. None of their samples in homes, zero, were over the EPA action limit, when DC WASA 69% were over the action limit. Now, when this utility went into the schools and sampled for lead, how many of their percent of their taps were over the action limit in the school sampling program, which is different? 24%. That illustrates the lead in school sampling protocol is tougher than the EPA protocol. It's a smaller sample. It has a more stringent uh, guideline for failure. So even though 0% of your homes are above the action limit, 24% of the taps in schools were. What do you think WASA found? Well, you run some numbers. I, I'd hope it's greater than 69%. 2%. I calculated the chance of this even happening. It was greater than 2 billion to 1. There was no way this could have possibly transpired the way they said it did. So I go and I FOIA the sampling protocol that they used, and what did I find? EPA didn't even use the EPA protocol. What did they do? They went in and they flushed those buildings, uh, buildings very thoroughly the night before. They removed the aerators before sampling, and they opened the tap slowly and filled the bottles at very, very low rates. This sampling protocol they used is the exact protocol I would write if I had a lead problem and did not want to find it. Now, what about Congress? They were sampled with the real EPA protocol. They didn't have lead pipes. They found problem taps, and Congress is still drinking bottled water to this day. And I also found in the FOIA request some information I think is insightful. Uh, P.S., in the 6,000 samples that we sample in daycare centers, out of 13 daycare centers, 12 were above the action level with the EPA sampling protocol. That is the true problem as it existed. So I just ask, you know, what kind of society are we? You know, we're protecting federal employees to a better standard than these children in D.C. schools. That's what this came down to. So 
Here's some more information from the FOIA. This is an EPA lead corrosion expert, March 2004. He's probably the premier lead corrosion expert in the world. What I find hard to believe is why with the known contamination potential from brass and solder, why are you spending so much time talking about just lead service lines? The response from EPA Region 3, this is being driven as much by public relations and politicians as by what makes sense in most other ways. I've got this email. Here's another uh, gem. Would it not appear unethical if D.C. Wasson and the EPA had evidence these citizens were ingesting high concentrations of lead in their drinking water and were not told about it? Can you... <laughs> My jaw just dropped. Can you imagine if DuPont was talking about, well, there's high lead in the drinking water. Should we tell people about it? This email was not responded to. So in closing here, you know, I sort of thought this was all about me. In, in fact, EPA has some systematic problems. This is an article from someone who used to work in EPA. Uh, the kind of people get ahead in EPA are those that pro procrastinate, obfuscate, and consistently come up with superficially plausible reasons for not accomplishing anything. And he actually put forth a law, Dietrich's Law. No one in EPA ever went to jail or lost his job or suffered any setback in his career for failing to do what the law required him to do and for which he was being paid. Now, let's just test that law. Uh, we threw a landlord in jail uh, for not telling people about a lead hazard in their apartment. What sort of repercussions have these folks at EPA Region 3 befallen? Well, here's what I found in a FOIA. I'm pleased to report that members of the D.C. lead response team took the gold, the gold medal, the highest award granted by the agency for distinguished servants of major significance to environmental improvement and to public service. These folks were given the agency's highest honor. Now, some of them deserved it, and I can tell you some of them absolutely did not deserve it. So with that, I'll just uh, conclude. You know, what is going on? You know, can people just go out and buy any scientific result that they want and get it published? I think the EPA, quite frankly, has lost its soul. I mean, this is someone, these, these people were willing to sacrifice human health to cover this problem up. Uh, we really need reporters and politicians because without them, this story never would have came out. And uh, it's not easy to do the right thing, always. But with that, I'll acknowledge uh, Catherine Peters, my other colleagues who've been offering me wonderful support. Uh, the U.S. EPA, actually many of my best friends are at the U.S. EPA. The greatest scientists in the world, in my opinion, are at the U.S. EPA. And unfortunately, they're not running things. National Science Foundation uh, and my family. So thank you very much for your attention. Is it coming through? There we go. Um, first, with respect to the IQ study, with respect to uh, lead increases, um, was that controlled for poverty issues? Because frequently, I mean, I'm sure poor people live in poorer apartments with poorer pipe standards, et cetera. 
Yes, uh, I'm not an expert on the low-level lead health effect studies that have been done. But in 2005, my understanding is that those studies were controlled for, canceled out statistically, and the current, uh, some of the more recent evidence suggests elevated blood lead, 10 parts per billion, results in a seven uh, point decrease on average across the population in IQ. Okay, thanks. Um, the second question is with respect to the particulate lead coming out of the solder, I'm wondering about the sampling procedures. Was, were a lot of samples, was that now discovered in part because a lot of samples were filtered before they were tested? Yes. And uh, is, is the, does the filtration remove those particles? Unbeknownst to me and many other people who were trying to do the right thing in sampling for lead, to detect this problem, you have to look for it. You need to turn on the faucet fast and collect your sample. That's when you have the greatest likelihood of sloughing those particles off. If you collect the sample slow, as is our custom in the water industry, you have a possibility of missing this problem completely. So, um, and indeed, I, as I stand here today, I do not believe in my heart that EPA knowingly gained that sampling protocol in the schools. I think it was a mistake. They have to correct that mistake because those children, I think, were exposed to potential danger. Uh, but I know the people who wrote that protocol, and I do not believe it was done on purpose. Uh, and we are missing this problem. You have to look for this problem. And the, the easiest way to find it is just go and turn on the faucet at very high speed, and that's when you have the greatest likelihood of detaching the lead. Hey, I wanted to follow up real quickly. Um, does the EPA protocol require filtering of samples before they're tested, and would that? We have found numerous problems with the EPA protocol uh, in terms of particulate lead. It turns out that the instrumentation that we use to quantify lead in water oftentimes misses particulate lead. You have to dissolve the lead to get in the water to have it quantified. So we found samples in Washington, D.C. as a result that had quite high lead in them we did the standard protocol, and it told us the lead was five times lower than it actually was. We acidify them, but unfortunately we're not acidifying them to a strong enough acid. They only use a pH 2 acid solution, and we found that that is insufficient for some of the lead particles in drinking water. So we're missing this. And again, this is something uh, that's happened, and no one knew about it. Okay. Yes, sir. What's the bioavailability of the particulate lead? I mean, if the sampling or the analysis is done by acidifying the sample, that then, you know, dissolves it, makes a, a cation where it would be yes. bioavailable. And That's you know, an how, important does it, how does it compare with, you know, actually ingesting it and ending up in blood lead? So the question is, does the particulate lead matter, yes or no? Because uh, it might not dissolve, it might pass right through. That's the general idea. We've done studies on these particles that we've collected, exposed them to simulated gastric acid. What we have found is that stomach acid is a stronger acid than the EPA acid. Uh, your stomach typically is about pH 1.8 versus the EPA is at 2. Your stomach has hydrochloric. The EPA uses nitric, it turns out. Many of these things dissolve better in hydrochloric acid. In addition, your stomach's warmer. It helps dissolve these uh, particles and, faster. And are there correlations what we showed, between that and blood lead content? Between, uh, pardon me? So if, if it's 
you know, digested, dissolved, does it, that then correlate with increase in the blood level? Uh, Which is really the question, right? Yes, it is. Uh, so the answer to that question is I don't know. What we've done is the simulated gastric acid studies, and what we've shown is that that lead will dissolve under conditions present in the stomach, oftentimes to a greater extent than it does in the normal EPA handling procedure. To go out and, you know, the human health component of this is beyond me. I can't even get the public health people at this time to take a water sample when they have a case of elevated blood lead because this CDC study says that, it's not says that it doesn't matter. It's incredible what's happening out there. Hi, I'm a nurse case manager for lead poisoning with a major health plan. And for what it's worth and to your credit, um, even though it may not be officially in the language of the sanitation code, the departments of health are testing water more and more regularly as we identify the children with the lead poisoning. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, one thing I'd ask you to do is check your sampling protocol. I reviewed the protocols uh, that are used by the city of Baltimore, other places, and unfortunately, they're removing the aerator and they're taking the sample at low flow rates. We've done some studies that show if you, if you do it according to the, the actual EPA protocol and use a high flow rate, you're oftentimes getting 10 times, 100 times more lead than if you use this other protocol. So let's go out there in these unusual cases where there's lead poisoning, let's go out there and look for lead in the water. Is this on? Um, what about the chloramine front? Have you had any more luck in warning people about chloramine, which must be a national problem uh, well, as well. Yeah, the, uh, the happy reality of this is that I suspect when we're through this transition to chloramines, it's expected we'll get up to about 50% of water companies will be using chloramines from 30% today. The happy reality is only a few percent of those probably are going to see serious lead problems like what we saw here. Why do I think that? I think that there's other factors that are in the water that are important to having this problem occur. Uh, so it's complicated. We cannot predict. Uh, it's most certainly not happening everywhere. It's, not, it's most certainly not happening even in the majority of cases where the transition occurs. But when it occurs, the thing that's so troubling about me is it's very isolated. Even in that house where the child had elevated blood lead, we sampled some taps that had no problem whatsoever, and out of another tap, these pieces of solder were coming out. So it's very hard to detect this problem, and that's a big concern to me because, you know, our protocol, our sampling protocol, even in a large city, might only collect 100 samples for lead, and that's nowhere near sufficient uh, to make sure that each and every individual is protected. The reality is you're on your own when it comes to lead. Uh, you cannot rely on the safety of drinking water in this country. I'm sorry to say it. Unless you test your water and you really look for that lead, in my opinion, there's no guarantee that you don't have a lead problem. Yes. Uh, thank you. Um, my, actually, my question was unrelated. Um, I, have you read the book, A Civil Action? I feel like this is a good stuff for a book, and that's similar to the, I don't know if anyone's read the civil action by Jonathan Harbour, but it's a similar water case up in Wilburn, Massachusetts. 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm very familiar with the book. Someone gave this to me uh, <laughs> at some point in this. Um, uh, I'm just trying to survive. My, my goals are as follows. That fraudulent study has to be withdrawn. I will debate that study with those authors anytime, anywhere. There is no way that study is correct. And even if they withdraw that study tomorrow, it's going to take years before some people realize again uh, that you know lead in water matters. I mean, the EPA has gutted their public information on this issue. They're saying the lead action limit isn't even health-based. I couldn't even make this stuff up. So my goals, that study has to be retracted. They have to find that data, okay? Uh, the other issue is I think we, you know, we really start to need to uh, look at lead in the water, and we have to get EPA. We need the EPA. I love the EPA, apparently more so than some of the people that work there. Uh, we have to get someone at the wheel there who understands public health and engineering and who's willing to um, you know, enforce things. This is unconscionable, what's happened. Yes. Can you say something about the chemistry of the chloramine-lead interaction? I, I really, I, I'm not sure what chloramine is and, and kind okay. of curious as how to, it might dissolve this stuff. The most important interaction, unbeknownst to us all this time, is lead, uh, chlorine was actually keeping lead in the pipes. For pure lead pipes, my friend at the US EPA, Mike Schock, several years ago, hypothesized that chlorine made lead very insoluble and kept it stuck on the pipes. In other words, chlorine turned out to be a lead corrosion inhibitor. So the main effect in Washington, D.C. was removing this inhibitor and replacing it with a compound that was not an inhibitor. And what happened was lead that accumulated over the years started to fall off. In the context of the solder issue, uh, we really don't fully understand that yet. We've only seen this horrific pieces of solder falling off into the system two or three times now. Of course, that's all we've looked for. What we've discovered there, it's really a battery effect. If you take solder by itself and put it in these waters, compare it to chlorine and chlorine, you don't see anything. But solder, as it's stuck onto copper, you have dissimilar metals and you get galvanic corrosion occurring. And in some waters, that galvanic electrochemical reaction uh, is accelerated dramatically. And the pH that we've measured at the surface of the solder, we've measured pHs as low as 2.0. So what's happening in some cases is uh, this galvanic reaction occurs, the solder, the lead-bearing material is being sacrificed in much the same way as the aluminum anode in your water heater is sacrificed at home. And the pH drops and you can get very, very high lead into water. It's a fascinating thing. Brass, we don't understand it. We've seen some samples of brass that have much, much higher lead leaching with chloramine, but on average it's only 20% worse for the typical type of brass. Brass, there's just an infinite variety. All brasses are different, so it comes down to this brass has a problem, that one has a slight problem, that one has no problem. It's a mess sorting those things out because each of the three lead sources behave totally differently. Yes, sir? I'm guessing the formula for 
I'm guessing that the formula for chloramine is CLNH4? Uh, CLNH2. NH2, okay. So one of the hydrogens has been replaced by a chlorine. So it's chlorine plus ammonia. NH3 is ammonia. Okay. Okay, well, you know, with that, thank you so much. I can't tell you, it uh, means a lot to me for you to hear me today. And uh, I always tell people hey, speaking is cheaper than therapy. <laughs>